and thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Generation Jihad. I'm Bill Raggio, and I'm here with my friend, colleague, and partner in crime, Tom Jocelyn. Hello, everybody. Today, we are going to discuss Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, one of Al-Qaeda's most prolific branches, the appointment of its new emir, his oath of allegiance to the emir of Al-Qaeda, and how this all fits in the bigger picture of the global jihad. Before we get started, you might notice Tom and I sound a little bit different in today's podcast. Tech didn't quite behave for us this week. As you know, we're only in our third episode and are still tweaking this process to give you as near a perfect product as possible. With that said, let's dive into today's program. Over the past decade, U.S. political, intelligence, and military figures have been attempting to write off Al-Qaeda. Barack Obama described Al-Qaeda as decimated and on the path to defeat multiple times during his presidency. Most recently, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that Al-Qaeda was a shadow of its former self. And yet, Al-Qaeda continues to fight to establish Islamic emirates in several countries, hoping one day to resurrect a global caliphate. Ayman al-Zawahiri, al-Qaeda's current emir, served as Osama bin Laden's deputy up until bin Laden was killed in May 2011. He has survived an 18-year-plus manhunt. Prior to 9-11, al-Qaeda had an active presence in Afghanistan supporting the Taliban's insurgency while plotting against the West. It had a small footprint in a number of other countries. Today, al-Qaeda maintains active insurgencies in Afghanistan and throughout the Indian subcontinent, Somalia, Mali, and the Greater Sahel, Syria, and Yemen. In Yemen, al-Qaeda created one of its most significant branches, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or AQAP. AQAP was formed in 2009 by merging al-Qaeda's networks in Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Nasir al-Wahashi, AQAP's first emir, previously served as Osama bin Laden's aide-de-camp in Afghanistan. Many of AQAP's top leaders were previously captured in Afghanistan, held at Guantanamo Bay, released to the Saudis, who in turn freed them. Others escaped from Yemeni prisons. Like all Al-Qaeda branches, AQAP wages an insurgency to create a local emirate, or Islamic State, with the ultimate goal of the formation of a global caliphate. Its deadly and effective insurgency has resulted in the takeover of large areas of southern and central Yemen, including several provincial capitals, twice since 2011. Today it still holds sway in a number of rural areas in Yemen. AQAP's fortunes on the battlefield have ebbed and flowed, and it has suffered a number of setbacks, but the group has persisted. AQAP also devotes resources to conduct external attacks against the U.S. and its allies. It has been adept at plotting such attacks. In perhaps its most brazen operation, two AQAP brothers stormed the office of Charlie Hebdo, a satirical magazine, in Paris, France in January 2011. Anwar al-Awlaki, an American Muslim cleric, played a crucial role in indoctrinating and recruiting Western jihadists, as well as the planning and execution of plots directed at the West. His teachings influenced U.S. Army Major Nadal Hassan, who went on a shooting spree at Fort Hood, Texas in 2009. To combat AQAP's threat, the U.S. has largely relied on an air campaign backed by small numbers of special operations forces to hunt and kill key AQAP leaders and operatives. At times, these operations have also targeted AQAP's conventional military capabilities. The U.S. has had noteworthy successes. Key leaders such as Waheshi and Olaki have been killed in the hunt. Most of AQAP's plots against the U.S. have been either thwarted or failed on their own accord. 
In addition, AQAP's state building project has been interrupted twice as the group has been forced to give up its overt control of some of Yemen's more populated areas. Have these tactical successes against AQAP added up to a strategic death blow? There are good reasons to suspect that the answer is no. According to assessments published by the UN Security Council, AQAP still has thousands of fighters on the battlefield. It has proven to be adept at replacing its key leaders. Kasim al-Rami, AQAP's last emir, was killed in a U.S. drone strike in January. It should be noted that he served as AQAP's top emir for nearly five years before he met his demise, and he was AQAP's top military commander for several years before that. Rami has been replaced with Khalid al-Batarfi, a seasoned jihadist who was groomed by al-Qaeda to eventually assume a leadership role. Tom, I can recall several conversations with you over the years where you noted that you thought Batarfi would eventually rise to the top of AQAP, assuming he survived the drones. Tell us about Batarfi and how you were able to identify him as an up-and-coming leader. Well, you know, Bill, we, we always follow basically every guy who pops up for Al-Qaeda internationally. We track what they're doing and saying, you know, at least in terms of what they're putting out there publicly. And then, of course, what assessments are made by the U.S. and its allies of what Al-Qaeda is doing publicly. And Khalid Batarfi was interesting because he um, was freed from a Yemeni prison in 2015 and immediately uh, took on a, a role that, that, that showed he had some uh, important stature or he had a significant stature and standing within AQAP's ranks and perhaps within al-Qaeda's ranks globally. Um, and then the more we started digging into his profile, it became clear that that was almost certainly the case. Um, this is a guy who traveled to Afghanistan in the late 1990s. He was trained at al-Qaeda's primary training facility known as al-Farouk, which is where some of the 9-11 hijackers and others uh, were trained. In addition, uh, a number of the fighters that went through al-Farouk were trained to fight alongside the Taliban against the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan. And that was the case with Batarfi. There's evidence, um, according to the U.S. government, that in fact he was one of those fighters who, on behalf of al-Qaeda, uh, fought alongside the Taliban against the Northern Alliance and U.S. forces in Afghanistan. His biography sort of, there are some gaps in it. He sort of disappears for a few years here and there. Um, but he emerges, like I said, after he escapes from prison in 2015, and it's at that point that he starts re recording messages uh, prolifically and repeatedly on behalf of, uh, of AQAP, covering uh, myriad issues, a bunch of issues covering worldwide jihadist sort of uh, propaganda and, and covering different hot spots, um, everything from Burma to West Africa. He's commenting on them publicly. Usually Al-Qaeda doesn't allow just anybody in their ranks to do that. Usually they have uh, some respect uh, for you and they think highly of you if, if they put you in that position. And, of course, we learned that he was um, a member of AQAP's Shura Council. That's their elite advisory council. He also was a provincial governor for the group. And eventually um, it becomes clear, uh, to us anyway, that he is one of several guys who is probably being groomed to eventually take over AQAP, so does time come. And his time came in January when Qasem al-Rami, his predecessor as AQAP emir, was killed in a U.S. drone strike. And what was interesting to us is we, we gamed out sort of who would be um, the next three to five guys who would be in line to take over that position. And he was certainly number one on our list for a variety of reasons. And, and here we are. He is, he is now the number one of AQAP. And we'll see how long he can survive in that position. He's somebody who's clearly been hunted for years, just as his predecessors were hunted. But, you know, it's interesting, as you said in your intro, Bill, Qasem Al-Rami was the, named the emir of AQAP in mid-2015. 
you know, he lasted until early 2020. Now, of course, his, his um, you know, room for maneuvering and for, uh, you know, taking action had been limited and constrained by the U.S. and its allies. But this is a guy, you know, his predecessor survived for about five years as the emir of AQAP, and we'll see how long Batarfi survives. Yeah, and that's a great point, Tom. So, like, you know, can we name a U.S. military commander um, who has been in a theater of operations for five years before moving on or retiring from the military? Well, you know, I mean, this is the this is the real point of what we used to call or we still call the long war is that on the U.S. side, um, you know, there's been a massive turnover in terms of the senior military ranks. I mean, you know, how many generals we had in Afghanistan now? I mean, I don't, I don't even know. One a year, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, uh, yeah, close to it. And I, I just, you know, this is part of the problem. And, you know, the, the um, some of the, the inspector general's office for Congress that does oversight on the Afghan war, for example, you know, talks about how there's a brain drain when it comes to the war. There's constantly this turnover. And I, Bill, you know, I know that we talk to analysts inside government uh, routinely. And it's interesting to see how these guys – come out of nowhere, they're they're sort of new and they don't really know much about these issues, so they don't have any sort of history on it. You know, so that's not, you know, obviously there's some great analysts in, in government that do have a longstanding sort of pedigree in covering these issues, but um, a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of turnover inside the U.S. And so there's probably quite a few people who don't really appreciate um, that a guy like Batarfi has been around as long as he has. Yeah. And Tom, uh, I, I guess it's uh, safe to assume that uh, Batarfi wasn't inactive while he was in a Yemeni prison. Well, we don't really know. I mean, you know, he was he was in a Yemeni prison in Makala, of course, and it's when they overran Makala in 2015 that he's he escapes. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, this is another reason why we we um, profiled him as a senior Al Qaeda leader, is that um, when when they AQP takes over Makala, you know, Batarfi is one of those guys who appears on the big screen in these city rallies where they're preaching their cause to the the population. They're trying to indoctrinate and proselytize on behalf of the jihadi cause. And Batarfi is one of the main key uh, featured speakers there. It shows how much respect for they have for him in terms of his ideological uh, leanings, his ideological knowledge, in addition to whatever operational capacity he brings. Yeah, yeah, very, it's very interesting. And uh, so Batarfi, he has uh, sworn allegiance to Ayman al-Zawahiri. Uh, explain to us the importance of his bayat, both the al-Qaeda Central Committee as well as AQAP. So the baya is, is a sacred oath within the jihadi ranks. Um, they often say it's something that hangs around their necks, um, basically meaning that if they break it, that the person they swore baya to has the um, has the the right to take off their head. And the baya is something that AQAP has maintained through three successive emirs now. So Nazar al-Wahashi had his baya to bin Laden. Um, bin Laden is killed. They re-up their baya to um, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Waheshi then, as the emir of AQP, is killed and Qasem al-Ramey takes over in 2015. He very quickly reaffirms the Baya, the Oath of Allegiance to Zawahiri on behalf of AQP. Then he's killed, Qasem al-Ramey's killed in January, and in comes Khalid Batarfi, and he very quickly rehearses the same uh, ritual once again, uh, reenacts the same ritual once again, and reaffirms his allegiance and AQP's allegiance to Zawahiri. This is a way of showing sort of their uh, chain of command in their world. Um, there's a lot of murky details, lot that's unknown about how this all works behind scenes in terms of how orders are given and received. It's part of the reason why we fought to get the Bin Laden files released, for anybody who's familiar with that whole epic story, um, you know, because we're trying to piece together how this organization actually works. But it's one of the outward signals that AQAP remains firmly in the Al-Qaeda fold and is not, um, you know, basically going its its own way at this point, at least not at the senior ranks. So uh, Waheshi, AQAP's first emir. 
Um, he also served as Al-Qaeda's general manager, which is a key position in the group. Why is this significant? And also, do you believe that Batarfi serves as a member of Al-Qaeda's Central Leadership Council? So what we'd say about this is, you know, there's sort of this um, false paradigm that took hold within the U.S. that there's this distinction between Al-Qaeda's core, which back in the days was thought to be sort of Osama bin Laden is not so merry men, holed up somewhere in Pakistan waiting to be droned to death for special forces to come calling. And then everything else was just sort of an Al-Qaeda affiliate, which was sort of had some loose alliance with Al-Qaeda, but really wasn't Al-Qaeda. It wasn't really Al-Qaeda. That was sort of the dogma we heard over and over again. And then, you know, AQAP comes along and it disproves the model uh, entirely. Um, Nazar Waheshi, the first emir of AQAP, was both the head of AQAP and a senior member of Al-Qaeda's management team globally, meaning that decisions were run through him that affected multiple theaters around the globe. Um, and then, you know, we profiled some of the other guys within AQAP senior ranks who we suspect were also members of Al-Qaeda's senior management team. Um, different pieces of evidence have come come out showing that AQAP's leadership is involved in the chain of succession for if and when Ayman al-Zawahiri finally is incapacitated or dies, that they, they, you know, the leader of AQAP is one of the potential successors who could take over that spot, although there are several others right now who are probably more senior. Um and so all this shows you that there is actually a structure to Al-Qaeda that ties together the affiliates with what is commonly known as the core. In other words, there's not this, this geographic separation that people have sort of developed in their minds where Al-Qaeda's sort of central leadership is holed up in Pakistan or Afghanistan now, and then everything else is sort of not part of that central leadership, I think is false. We've identified guys not only in Yemen, but in Syria, in Africa, and different hotspots who are almost certainly part of Al-Qaeda's senior uh, management team, although they're not advertised as such regularly. But the story with AKP sort of showed that that dichotomy between Al-Qaeda's senior leadership and the affiliates was wrong. Yeah, you know, this is one of those issues that I know frustrates both you and I on a daily basis. I mean, we see the evidence for this. For instance, we've seen um, a, we've, there's been communications intercepted between uh, Waheshi and the head of AQIM or Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, where he talks about the pros and cons of, of declaring an Islamic state. And yeah, those weren't, the, those, weren't even, those weren't even intercepted. Those were yeah. found by Rukmini Kalamaki, yes. yeah, who's an yeah. intrepid reporter for the Associated Press and the New York Times, who, you know, she had the same frustration. She was going through a hut in Timbuktu or something like that in Mali, and they find this correspondence, and then there's this sort of, uh, we hope to have a meeting on the podcast at some point to talk about this. There was sort of this indifference within U.S. intelligence circles to what she had found, and although those correspondence are actually highly illuminating and are really essential for understanding the long-term strategic planning that al-Qaeda has. But the point is, is that we come up with, there's, there's stuff, evidence like this surfaces all the time, and yet the paradigm for understanding al-Qaeda doesn't change, right? Yeah, and so yeah. that, that's, that's how you know that there's a problem, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, just reading of the bin Laden files and the interpretation of it, it, it's just, it's startling. You see the interaction between the central command and the affiliates and the importance of the affiliates and the leadership. And we've seen leader, you know, leaders come and go and switch between theaters. And it's, it's the untold story of Al Qaeda, the one that we've attempted to tell at the Lone War Journal. But, you know, as I think you said in, in our first episode, we are sort of the minority report on this. And unfortunately, been, we've been the minority report on this that's been, uh, that's been right. Um, so Batarfi, in his pledge to Zawahiri, praised the U.S. Taliban withdrawal deal, which many wrongly call a peace deal. What did he have to say, and why does he view this deal as a success for jihadists? 
Well, now keep in mind, again, that Batarfi is someone who fought alongside the Taliban in pre-9-11 Afghanistan and then, uh, according to the U.S. government, fought against U.S. military forces uh, on behalf of the Taliban after 9-11. This is a guy who um, is uh, held up the Taliban as a model for governance for jihadis around the world on multiple occasions. And the Taliban has returned the favor. In December of 2016, the Taliban put out a video that celebrated the bond of the Mujahideen between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. So they're celebrating the historical relationship between the two. Um, and Batarfi was featured heavily in that video, talking, uh, praising Mullah Omar for standing by the foreign Mujahideen who made their way to fight on behalf of the Taliban's cause, and also um, praising the Taliban's uh, governance efforts and, and predicting that Islamic uh, law or Sharia would come back even stronger in Afghanistan in the years to come under the Taliban's leadership. And here now, after being appointed as AQAP's new emir, Batarfi in his first audio message uh, goes out of his way to praise the Taliban and its successes in fighting against the U.S. and and this withdrawal deal that, that has been agreed to. And it, it's interesting because you can you can set uh, compare Batarfi's words to those of senior U.S. leaders, including Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who has sold this deal as somehow some sort of epic break between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. That this is going to be you know as, as I've said. That Pompeo has sold this as the greatest portrayal, basically, in the history of jihadism. We don't see any evidence of that, and we're not going to get into that again here today. Um, but here's Batarfi saying quite the opposite, basically seeing this as a boon for the jihadis' cause. And I think that that sets up an interesting comparison going forward. We're going to find out which one is right, right? We're going to find out. Is Batarfi right or is Pompeo right? Yeah. Um, Tom, so just to remind our listeners, how many raids have the Taliban conducted against al-Qaeda in the three-plus weeks since this uh, deal was signed? Uh, zero. We're at a, yeah. It's it, we're at we're at we're holding steady at zero. Zero statements about Al Qaeda or Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. Zero statements about any kind of international foreign jihadis, which Taliban officially denies that there are any foreign fighters even in the country, which is of course absurd. Uh, and zero raids against uh, you know Al Qaeda or Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. Now again, as you've documented, Bill, the Taliban is quite capable of attacking Afghan forces throughout the country and most, including in most of the provinces in, with, across Afghanistan. And yet we remain firmly pegged at zero when it comes to the number of attacks against Al Qaeda. And we don't expect that number to rise. Um, what does Batarfi have to say about Al Qaeda's ongoing global war? Well. Al-Qaeda, this is what I, I alluded earlier to the fact that Batarfi um, sort of steeped in the ideology of all this. He's somebody who's drunk from the well of jihadism pretty pretty often and, and is, is, <laughs> is, is, is pretty drunk on it, uh, He uh, even though he doesn't drink. Uh, uh, not, not the way you and I do, Bill, anyway. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, in any event, you know, Batarfi is a guy who— um, he, he sort of he rehearses all the talking points. He knows the Al Qaeda ideology in and out. He knows he's given sort of historical lectures on on the the ideology and the history of all this. And he's someone who portrays Al Qaeda as as being part of a united Ummah or uh, worldwide community of Muslims who is going against the Crusaders um, and all of the different forms that that takes. So for Batarfi, he sees Al Qaeda's um, international or global jihad as a unified effort putting aside all the problems they have, he sees it as a unified effort against the U.S. and Israel and Russia and Iran and all of their other enemies. And that's how he's portraying this. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting, especially since um, over the years, AQAP has attempted to hide some of its insurgency operations in Yemen by using a front group called Ansar al-Sharia. Why has AQAP done this? 
Well, you know, in the correspondence we talked about, there was that uh, Rukmini Kalamaki discovered in Mali. You know, Waheshi at one point, he even, I think he even uses like an emoji or something. I forget off the top of my head, but he had some sort of symbol where he was sort of he's writing to the head of Al Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb, asking, you know, if the, they have a similar relation. If he, the head of Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, has a similal relationship with Ansar al Sharia that they do, the AQP does. Wink, wink. In other words, they are Ansar al Sharia. Right. And and in fact, in fact, that is the case with Ansar Sharia in Africa. Contrary to what the dog again, another dogma that came out of Washington at one point that sort of these Ansar al Sharia groups were just local yokel jihadis who didn't really have any sort of animosity for the U.S. and and didn't aren't really part of Al Qaeda's jihad. That was all fictitious. We're going to get into that in a future episode of the podcast as well. Um, but you know, the bottom line is the AQAP was the first to use the Ansar al Sharia brand as a sort of political unifying. Uh, force as sort of a new political entity um, to market their sort of charitable works, their sort of proselytization, to try and put a local face, uh, you know, and of course Ansar Sharia means defenders or partisans of Sharia, meaning Islamic law. And the whole idea was the AQAP's front group was going to was going to deliver real Islamic law to the people of Yemen. And of course this was the same thing that was then repeated in, in other theaters. Um, they still use that brand now, um, but I don't think anybody pretends that Ansar al-Sharia in Yemen is anything other than an AQAP front, although I guess I guess you could probably find analysts to do. Um, but it's obvious that, it, that it's part of a, a AQAP's operations, and it's part of it shows that they have these political interests that go way beyond just trying to take out an airliner or or, or attack the U.S. And that's part of Al Qaeda's sort of strategy that we've emphasized for the years that's a loss, I think, on a lot of Western analysis. A lot of Western analysis focuses purely on their ability to attack the U.S. or their success in doing that and the fact that they haven't had any big operations in the U.S. in a long time. Um, and that's certainly part of the story and something that has to be factored in. Of course it does. But they have the, the interest here, the grand game for them is really ultimately about acquiring local power. And really, that's always been the case. Yeah. And, and that is their long game. And, and it allows them the ability to the, the more local power they acquire, the more they can set up training camps, do all of the things they need to do to hit the West. I, you know, look, I think it's become very difficult to be effective um, for them to hit, you know, targets like to conduct another 9-11 style attack. But that sure doesn't mean they're not going to continue to try. They would have been Laden say uh, after 9-11, if he could have killed 30,000 or 300,000 or 3 million Americans, he would have done that too. And we have to keep, we have to remind ourselves about that. So AQAP claimed full responsibility for the December 6, 2019 shooting at Naval Air Station Pensacola in Florida by Mohammed Seed al-Shamrani a second lieutenant in the Saudi military who was training in the United States. What do we know about AQAP's claim at this point? Well, you know, we watched the video, of course, was put out. It's featured Qasem al-Ramey, the previous emir of AQAP, who was droned to death in January. And Ramey portrayed um, Shamrani as a, 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 basically a sleeper agent for AQAP, and he declared full responsibility for the shooting on behalf of AQAP. Um, you know, I would say at this point, we don't really know what the extent of the evidence is to justify that claim. We don't know uh, the degree to which Shimrani was um, either inspired by AQAP, which he certainly was at a minimum that, because you can see in sort of his social media accounts, he's referencing Osama bin Laden and Anwar al-Awlaki, and there are certain things he, he does and says that are, are, are obviously uh, right out of the Al-Qaeda inspiration playbook. 
But the question, big question still is, is was he more than that? Was he actually an, an active agent of AKP? And that's certainly possible. I mean, you can't rule it out. I mean, I think some people are quick to rule out that sort of thing. I think it reflects their own biases. Uh, I am completely agnostic. He, he may may have been or he may not have been. We're going to find, I hope, hopefully we'll find out and hopefully U.S. authorities will look into it. But what's interesting about this, um, if you look at the sort of the, the perspective, uh, longer perspective on all this is that. Our sources, Bill, if you remember, is that after the, the the shooting in Pensacola last year on December 6th, which I think it was three Americans were killed and eight more were wounded, um, you remember our sources said that there was then a renewed effort to go get Qasem al-Raimi, the head of AQAP, after that. Um, and that's a very interesting thing. I mean, you know, obviously Raimi had been hunted for years. This isn't something where he all of a sudden is hunted for the first time. I wouldn't make that claim. But... You know, our sources indicated that um, there was a renewed urgency um, within the U.S. intel and counterterrorism circles to get Ramey after this all went down. I think that's interesting because it, it, indic- it indicates to us that there may very well be more to the story than we know. At this point, you know, of course, they've got him. They got Kasimo Ramey. Um, basically before his video claiming responsibility Pensacola came out. So it wasn't just a reaction to the video or the claim. They had some intelligence that indicated there's probably more to the story or maybe more to the story. And so I'm, I'm curious, Bill, I'm sure you are too. We, I think we should see some sort of investigation into this. I, I'd certainly like to see it. I don't know that there's one ongoing, but it would be great to see if there's if there's more details that could come out from authorities about who Shamrani really was. Yeah, and... Look, and I think that the fact that it, if this was a reactionary hit to kill El Rainey, like they step up efforts, you know, it, it, it shows how we're taking our eye off the ball in going after these jihadists. One of the things we track is the raids against you know, the drone strikes, airstrikes against the AQAP in Yemen and other places, right? Um, prior to him being targeted, I believe there was one or two strikes last year. And they hit basically in Yemen, inside in Yemen. of Yemen. Yeah, where they right. hit some military style targets. This really speaks to a, you know, a, a, I think what is becoming a growing indifference to jihadists until they until they actually decide to do something. And uh, I think that uh, that does not bode well going forward in this fight. So, Tom, some analysts have attempted to downplay Alaki's role in plotting attacks against the U.S. Um, we know that he was definitely involved with the inspiration of attacks. What can you tell us about Alaki's role in attacks before he before he was killed in a U.S. drone strike? Well, you know, there, there's he was killed in a U.S. drone strike. I think it was in September 30th, 2011, and basically the period between 2009 up until 2011. You see, Alaki pursues multiple avenues for trying to attack the West and the U.S. Um, certainly, he's putting out a lot of material that goes into the inspiration bucket. He's trying to inspire individual jihadists, building on sort of earlier works along those lines to try and get um, people to act on their own without any sort of organizational affiliation uh, to go and, and conduct attacks in the West. But concurrently, he's also pursuing more professionalized style plots. Um, and one of the things I've written up uh, uh, for a book I'm working on. Um, that's coming out hopefully within the next year, I'm not really sure, um, is sort of just a a basic summary of what Alaki did between 2009 and 2011. And uh, it's clear, for example, that Umar Farouk Abdul-Muttalib, who was this young Nigerian student who um, volunteered to act as a suicide bomber for AQAP on Christmas Day 2009, um, he's the, the famous or infamous underwear bomber. He tried to light his underwear bomb. It's very clear, according to his testimony, that he received, quote-unquote, guidance from Alaki, direct personal guidance, 
and then Alaki advised him about you know how to prepare for the operation, how to go through with it. Um, you know, basically advised him on on when to take and how to figure out when to take the to do it to actually go through with it, the timing of it, and that sort of thing. And uh, Abdul Muttalib, according to court filings, is very clear that he wouldn't have gone through with it without Alaki's permission, and that with Alaki's permission, no one could talk him out of it, including his own parents. So that's a very strong personal direct role in a terrorist plot. But you know, there there are a couple of others that we have documented as well. I mean, there was this British Airways um, computer. Uh, technician of some sort named Rajiv Karim, who was communicating via encrypted messaging with Alaki, and Alaki wanted him to attack aviation coming out of the UK. That's it was clearly per, uh, personal hands-on direction and involvement from Alaki in that plot. There was a, a Vietnamese um, convert to Islam named Min Pham who uh, actually volunteered for a similar uh, suicide operation on behalf of AQAP. And according to court records, Alaki was communicating with him regularly and personally walked him through what to do and encouraged him to actually carry out a suicide bombing in, at Heathrow in London, um, preferably at one of the terminals where the U.S., um, where Americans or Israelis were coming through. Um, so these types of details show that Alaki was very much had a hands-on in some of this plotting. It wasn't just that he was inspiring plots or just you know talking a big game from over sees this is a guy who was had a direct hands-on effort to do this and I think actually some of what he was doing um, prefigured some of the techniques that uh, the Islamic State in particular started uh, using uh, ramping up after the rise of its so-called caliphate in particular you know his encrypted messaging uh, with Kareem and others you know indicated that um, Alaki would had, had seen the value in being able to walk people through prospective terrorists through um, their actions um, via applications, you know, web-based applications, computer applications. He didn't have access to the types of smartphones that we have with, you know, encrypted end-to-end -end communications. Certainly ISIS has taken advantage of that in directing um, a, a number of individual small-scale plots throughout the West. But I think a lot of his activity in that regard, as I wrote in this uh, draft book, um, prefigured sort of what ISIS and others are doing now in that regard, and that, that Alaki had a very hands-on approach to using computer technology and evolving technologies to um, not just inspire plots, but to actually direct them remotely. Tom, Alaki, as you note, is, uh, you know, he was a figure that inspires not just Al-Qaeda, but Islamic State fighters. Explain the importance of his preachings, how they've persisted on the internet over the years, and, and what this means to the jihadist community at large. Well, you know, early on when the Islamic State was rise, initially rising in power in 2014, um, some of their propaganda featured Alaki's endorsement of its predecessor, the Islamic State of Iraq, and used Alaki's testimony to, to basically brandish their credentials and legitimacy in jihadi ranks to basically show themselves to be a legitimate Islamic emirate and then caliphate. Um, that's sort of the way they used his testimony. Now, what's interesting, of course, is Al-Qaeda senior leadership endorsed the Islamic State of Iraq, too, where there's plenty of evidence along those lines. So this wasn't something that was unique to Alaki, but they saw that Alaki was important enough and had enough international standing that they wanted to make sure that his testimony sort of was repackaged as they broke away from Al-Qaeda and became the so-called caliphate. They wanted to use him in that regard. Now, what's interesting about that is, of course, you know, it, 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 it's very doubtful that Alaki would have gone along with ISIS, would have gone along with Abu Baker al-Baghdadi's project and Abu Muhammad al-Anani, the first spokesman of the Islamic State or ISIS. 
Um, the truth of the matter is the AQAP and its senior leadership became vocal critics of the ISIS caliphate project and rejected Baghdadi as a, as a supposed caliph and rejected the caliphate claim of ISIS. And I think it's, it's probably good evidence to suggest, well, I couldn't say good evidence, but there are good reasons to suspect, let's say, that Alaki would have been in a, of a similar mind. I doubt very much, although I can't say for certain, I doubt very much he would have gone along with the ISIS caliphate project. And of course, this is one of the things, Bill, that we've been tracking inside Yemen is that AQAP to this day um, you know, is still, you know, as at times is at odds with ISIS and their upstart branch in Yemen, although other times um, they appear to be cooperating. I mean, Batarfi himself released a message at one point and basically said, you know, we have good relations with all the jihadis and, and Islamists in Yemen. And essentially he was saying that in with respect to ISIS and other parties as well. Um, but at times we've seen them go at each other, of course, pretty hard. Um, you know, there have been definitely been a number of battles between the two. I think it's pretty obvious within Yemen that AQAP still maintains the larger uh, footprint, the larger operation. And some analysts predicted that ISIS was going to overtake al-Qaeda everywhere. Well, Yemen is a powerful example where that's certainly not the case. Right, Bill? Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. We see – at times we see them reporting, um, attacking each other, and then at other, other times we see indications that there might be some cooperation. So AQAP has been more than willing to cooperate – with the Yemeni government um, and other actors when it suits its need. Um, it's fighting in a multifaceted war in Yemen that makes Game of Thrones look pretty simplistic at times. So what is a AQAP's motivations to, to cooperate with the Yemeni, Yemeni government? Are they, are they doing this for tactical purposes? Um, what's your assessment of that? So, you know, AQAP has taken a long view to state building in Yemen. Um, this is something that they see that it's going to take a while to build an emirate there. And they're willing to make certain tactical compromises in order to achieve that long-term strategy. Now, they've clearly uh, have suffered setbacks. This is not a, a case where they're on the march and they're sort of increasing in, in strength indefinitely. There's a lot of questions about AQAP's strength right now in Yemen, especially with the setbacks they've suffered in recent years. Um, but part of their whole um, sort of modus operandi is that basically they've decided that they're willing to make compromises and work with different actors, including at times um, the fractious Yemeni government or, or Arab forces or others, um, basically against their common allies. Now, obviously, or I'm sorry, common enemies. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot going on here. I mean, the Houthis rose to power a few years ago, swept out of power. Um, Hadi's government, President Hadi's government, which was backed internationally. Um, and that has sort of reset the whole game in Yemen in a way that makes it very difficult to track exactly what AQAP's strength and power is on the ground. They, at one point, of course, or twice now, as you know, Bill, they've, they seized large portions of southern Yemen, and they were building their emirate and starting to apply uh, Sharia or Islamic law. They were holding courts, and they had checkpoints and that sort of thing. Most famously, they had the port city of Makala, where they were collecting taxes at the port and were building up their infrastructure. And then, of course, this Arab-led coalition comes in and sweeps them from power. And now they didn't stand and fight. Um, Saudi and UAE forces. I mean, they do claim some attacks against the UAE the Emiratis at times, but for the most part, what happened was the AQP basically melted away, melted into the countryside. And it's very, there's, you know, this is one of the things we always struggle with along with journal. It's very difficult to get a good handle on how strong they are today in the countryside, the rural areas of Yemen, because a lot of their activity is not observable. Now, it doesn't mean that, that they are indefinitely increasing in strength or anything like it. They probably have all sorts of problems we don't detect, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily defeated or out of the game either because 
part of what we talk about is that the jihadis are fundamentally organized as insurgents. They're, you know, guerrilla fighters who are trying to basically acquire political power for themselves in the long run. And these insurgencies have a capacity to them that is often underappreciated in the West. And that's why you see that these organizations, even after suffering decapitation strikes or other setbacks, losing power, losing ground, they're able to sort of come back at different times. It doesn't mean they come back nearly necessarily as strong as they were before. Sometimes they can be stronger, sometimes they're going to be weaker. But the point is that there's a capacity of the insurgency on the ground that is often not really understood or appreciated in analytic circles. Wouldn't you agree with that, Bill? Yeah, I would agree with that completely. I mean, one of the things, you know, look, we talked about how Al-Rami served for five years before being killed. We have to think about all the time that he spent within AQAP and Al-Qaeda prior to that as well. He had a full career. Um, these groups are, are pretty adept at replacing their leadership. Again, it's not perfect. It causes them problems. But we're dealing with, you know, these guys don't retire. They die. They either die in battle or they die of old age. Now we hear he's in his 60s, I believe. So Kasim al-Rami served in al-Qaeda's ranks since the 1990s up until he was killed this year. There are other al-Qaeda, other al-Qaeda veterans who have, who are within AQAP who um, share a similar background. Can you tell us about some of them? So, you know, one of the interesting things when we were, we talked about how um, Khalid Batarfi was going to take over as the emir of AQAP, there were several other candidates to do that, um, including some Yemenis um, who could potentially be in that that position. But, you know, there are other sort of nationalities in AQAP's leadership as well. One of them is a former Gimotetemi named Ibrahim Al-Kosi, who's originally from Sudan and several years ago was repatriated from Guantanamo to Sudan uh, by the Obama administration as part of a plea deal that he uh, agreed to with the U.S. government. Government. Uh, what's interesting about uh, Kosi is that he um, is somebody who, again, there was a lot of misreporting on his background. You know, there was, uh, I remember when the debate was going on about him and his time at Guantanamo and his, uh, at the time, his pending release, there were a lot of reports that suggested he just was a sort of a minor accountant or cook for Osama bin Laden and nothing, nothing that really, uh, not really a figure of any kind of significant standing. And you go through his biography and it told quite a different story. This is a guy who served bin Laden in a variety of roles and was clearly very, um, you know, highly trusted by bin Laden and and part of his inner coterie. And lo and behold, after he's transferred from Guantanamo and he's sort of repatriated to Sudan, he pops up again in Yemen as a senior figure in AQAP. And he's been, he's now somebody who's featured in Al-Qaeda's propaganda, not just AQAP's propaganda, but Al-Qaeda's propaganda, to sort of recounting, regaling stories about his time with bin Laden and giving a sense of gravitas and um, sort of uh, really a, a legacy here to connect younger um, jihadis to basically that first generation of Al-Qaeda. And he's somebody who was clearly within AQAP's um, senior ranks. There's another guy known as um, Ibrahim Albanya, who was uh, an Egyptian who was actually first dispatched to Yemen in the early 1990s to establish relationships with the Yemeni tribes on behalf of bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri. And he's been in the game for a long time. He's the head of security for AQAP and part of their sort of counterintelligence network, the head of their counterintelligence network, or at least he has been in the past. He's another figure who's been there a long time. And, you know, one of the things, Bill, that we talk about is that these guys are just the ones we know about because they're on camera. We don't know about all the guys who aren't on camera, right? I mean, you know, a guy like Khalid Batarfi, you know, we could guess that he was going to be next in line to be the emir of AQAP in part because we saw him and we know who he is. But there are plenty of these people we don't know who they are, and all of a sudden they pop up eventually, and then we say, oh, lo and behold, this guy was in, in the game all along, right, Bill? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. It's a, as Donald Rump, 
as Donald Rumsfeld said, uh, they are definitely the unknown unknowns. All those ones we don't know who they are, they're lurking. And there are a lot of them. And look, if one thing has been clear to both you and I over the years, anyone who has been close to Osama bin Laden, be it his cook, his driver, his aide de camp, which Waheshi was, they are destined to do better things uh, in Al-Qaeda. And if you think of it in mob terms, it's like being the driver for the Don. Um, you're not going to get that close to him if you don't have potential to move up in the organization. And I think you know, that's, Bill, that's where Bill, it actually reminds, reminds me, actually, and I, I don't like to use names, so I won't use names here, but there was a, a Yemeni analyst who referred to Nazar al-Waheshi as basically the driver for bin Laden in a derogatory fashion. He, I remember this years ago, we did an event, and he referred to it as sort of like a driving Miss Daisy sort of character, right? And I was like, that just doesn't understand this stuff at all, right? I mean, if you think that that's who Waheshi was, right, then you don't know what you're talking about. And my, I think our big problem here is, you know, when we talk about this stuff, it's not that AQAP is some, you know, uh, 10-foot ogre that can't be defeated. I mean, they have tons of problems. I'm sure problems that we can't see even. Um, but the issue is that there's a resiliency and a depth here that is often underappreciated because of these sort of flippant analyses of the whole thing. And and there's the unknown. I mean, we don't know how many guys they have in a senior leadership cadre who could potentially take over in the long run and keep things going. I mean, do they have another, you know, Holly Batarfi type figure in their ranks who is somebody who's just somebody they're not putting on camera, but is, is just as influential and steeped in the ideology and is respected by the international jihadis as he is? You know, certainly possible, right? I mean, this is the whole thing. I mean, you know, you mentioned uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri earlier, Bill, and how he evaded a manhunt for 18 plus years. You know, one of the things about this, and you also asked me about Batarfi's um, bio or Oath of Allegiance to Zawahiri. It's one of those things that I think we think is underappreciated too. I mean, you know, it's clear that Zawahiri has had many management problems, tons of management headaches through the years, including with the rise of ISIS in particular. But, you know, here you have the leader of AQAP very quickly reaffirming his allegiance to Zawahiri. You can point to the similar um, by uh, oaths of allegiance from, you know, Somalia or East Africa or Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, which operates not only in Afghanistan and Pakistan, but in other countries. Um, you know, this it's a murky situation in Syria right now because of all the problems. And that's another uh, future episode of the podcast, I think. But the bottom line is you can easily point to thousands of jihadis based on the chain of command who are loyal to Zawahiri in across the globe, potentially tens of thousands, depending on according to some estimates. Um, you know, that's not nothing. And and the idea that, you know, Zawahiri is just this spent force and this sort of this guy who nobody really cares about, um, I think I think doesn't give him enough credit, unfortunately, for just how much of an evil mastermind he is. I mean, I the way I like to put it is that, you know, if I had tried to be on the lam for as long as Zawahiri has been, you know, I don't think I would survive. I think I'd probably would be dead by now, you know, and this is a guy who has done things to turn the tables on the U.S. at times um, and stay in the game, which you got to give him some credit for just being able to do that. Right, Bill? Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct, Tom. I think, you know, the, the two key issues that disturb me in all of this is these groups' resiliency. Look, let's look at, we, we explained Yemen's, or uh, I'm sorry, AQAP's res- resilience in Yemen. You look at Somalia, it has been up and down, taken over territory, controlled major cities, controlled half the country at one point in time, then kicked out by a coalition, uh, but it regained its strength and it's come back. We all are very well familiar with the Taliban. I think those are the big three of the ones where you can look at their insurgencies over decades. And the other issue is the commitment. And particularly, you know, when you talk, explain the importance of the Baya, there's a religious aspect to, to this that matters. It counts. 
It's very important. It, it's part of what keeps them committed to their cause because they're true believers. They're just not criminals that are out to kill Americans because that's what they like to do. They're seeking to, they have a religious goal and that goal is to establish its, its global caliphate. And we pretend, not you and I obviously not, but US analysts in general pretend Al-Qaeda is merely focused on conducting terrorist attacks in the West, but it's far, far more complex than that. And that is how they're able to stay in this game. Yeah, you know, and the, the religious dimension of this, the ideological dimension of this brings up another false dichotomy. One of the things you see in some analytic circles is this idea, well, you know, people put too much emphasis on the ideology and it's really just all these local concerns. And again, that's a false dichotomy, right? I mean, these organizations, of course, have all sorts of local dynamics in play. Of course they do. We never denied that. They have all sorts of uh, local machinations going on and concerns that that filter on this. These these are human beings after all, right? And they have to live in a particular time in a particular place. But the issue is that the ideology oftentimes is the glue or what binds these organizations together with their fellow brethren um, and what gives them purpose and motivation and cohesion at times when they face adversity or even in times when they're prospering. Um, It's something that gives Gives them sort of a motivation or a sort of a, a world, a, a goal in life, to what they can work toward or achieve, which is a very important thing. In fact, I think part of the problem we're having right now in the West is that people don't really know what they are living for anymore, other than sort of material wealth. And I'm, I'm not particularly religious myself, but I, I respect people who are. But I think that's part of what's happening here in the West is that people sort of look at these things. It's color and analysis of the jihadis in a way where Westerners oftentimes think, well, ideology can't matter that much to them because it doesn't matter that much to me. And that's just a false assumption big time. Right, Bill? I mean, these guys, these guys really do believe this stuff. You know, a lot of them do anyway. The, I, the ideology is the driving force for them. Without it, it probably falls apart. It's what keeps them from when they suffer massive defeats, they, they're able to regroup and come back. It's not because... They just want to kill Westerners with airplanes and, and bombs. It's because they have a goal. And, and, and the goal is the, is the resurrection of the caliphate, right? I mean, Bill, you and I have talked about this too. You know, when ISIS rose in 2014, everybody was talking about how, oh, well, oh my God, they, they, they built a, they're building a caliphate. Al-Qaeda could never do that. They're not, Al-Qaeda's not about the caliphate. They're only about attacking the West. And, you know, listen, the first emir of AQAP, Nazar al-Wahashi, when uh, there was a quartet of al-Qaeda veterans who announced the formation of AQAP in January 2009. And I actually recently went back to uh, that video and was listening to what they said and how they spoke. And they made it very clear that this was, their goal was to build an emirate that could ultimately be part of an Islamic caliphate. This is in 2009. And Waheshi was clearly building on Osama bin Laden's thinking and ideology and the whole goal of al-Qaeda and their longstanding goal. And this is what they were going to do. They were going to build an emirate in Yemen and elsewhere and then ultimately link these emirates up. What people don't realize is that ISIS basically, the, whereas al-Qaeda had primed the pump for the caliphate, ISIS basically came along and said, ta-da, we did it. Right, we built the caliphate. We really are that we're gonna we're gonna sort of fulfill these uh, this this long standing sort of goal that Al Qaeda and other jihadis and Islamists have had. Of course, ISIS caliphate fell as Al Qaeda predicted because if you try and hold ground and try and actually function as a Islamic empire going forward, you're probably going to lose it. And part of what AQAP has done in Yemen is they've tried they've they've learned from those lessons through the years and they've not tried to hold ground in Mukalla or elsewhere in these densely you know, the more dense urban areas of Yemen if there is such a thing. Um, you know, as compared to other areas anyway um you know and the idea was that aqap melted 
it away to live to fight another day. But they still maintain that goal, right, Bill? I mean, we see that everywhere across the goal, right? Whether it be the Taliban building his Islamic Emirate in Afghanistan, you know, AKP, AQAP trying to build an Islamic Emirate in Yemen, Shabab in East Africa, Al Qaeda Islamic Maghreb, or its offshoot in West Africa. They're all trying to build Emirates. That's the whole, it's all about Emirates. That's what they're all about. <laughs> It is. And in what we see, you know, look, they're thinking globally, they establish its caliphate, but it begins locally. And what do they do when they take over territory? What is the first thing they do? They impose their version of Islam, of Islamic law or Sharia. Um, in some cases where they did in Iraq, where they did it harshly, it backfired on them. But in places, other places like in Somalia and Mali, they learned their lesson. Uh, Yemen also, and this is part of what Ansar Sharia is about, they gradually ease it in so they don't turn off the local populations. They're very adept at doing it. There's a and reason. And it, it could be AQAP learned that lesson too, right? Yeah. I mean, that's part of the correspondence that we referenced earlier. I mean, AQAP learned that you can't come in and do it right away. In fact, when the second time they held territory across southern Yemen, one of the things we noticed going through all their social media channels was the AQAP wasn't advertising Sharia in the way that ISIS was, for example. Yeah. That, it, right? I mean, they, yeah. they were very, they did that more on the sly. I mean, I remember, the, I remember there was this one scene where this woman was being stoned to death for adultery. And they wanted people to know that they were doing that sort of thing, but they didn't actually show it. So they, they released these these photos sort of setting up the scene and the aftermath, but they didn't actually show the stoning the way ISIS would because they knew that that could offend um, sort of the more mainstream uh, Muslim population across the board. But they wanted the, the radicals, the, the real ideologues and extremists to know that they were doing that. And that's part of what we've seen, right, Bill, is that these groups, they're, they're all – all the groups we're talking about, they are all in different stages of implementing Sharia. They just don't necessarily, they're not as necessarily in your face about it the way ISIS has been. Yeah, it's a lesson they've learned over the years, how to to do it, how not to overstep their bounds. Like I said, in Iraq, when Zawahiri did it, I'm sorry, when Zarqawi um, did it, he did it very harshly. And it, and even Al-Qaeda Central was, get back, you know, gave him backlash and said, look, this is going to turn the people against us. And so the other branches, you know, look, they all watch what they're doing. They communicated, as you, as you noted, with the communications between AQIM and AQIP. And it's a, they, they, they're not, you said it right. They're not perfect. They have a lot of flaws. But the fact that they persist, despite these flaws, that they're taking lessons from other theaters and, and trying to fine tune how it conducts its, military operations, it's, you know, imposing its laws and how to, you know, another thing I remember when AQAP took over Macala, they were advertising its services. I think I recall you put up billboards, they had pictures of billboards of them, you know, they wanted to show how, look, we're helping the people. So the, it's a, it's a very, they're very uh, adept at trying to tune their message and tune their operations to, for, for a lasting effect. The fact that a group that is, you know, has minimal resources, minimal funding, and is taking a beating from a superpower and um, an allied states, and yet still can persist. It's something that we should all be very concerned about. Yeah, and I, I don't know how much of a beating they've taken of late, because as you pointed out, right, there were only one or two airstrikes in Yemen by the U.S. last year, and we've certainly, if if, if de- the U.S. is very good at decapitation strikes, very, but 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 not so good at the other things, and and there's really no political will for anything else at this point. There's there's barely any political will for decapitation strikes at this point, you know. But you know, it, it reminds me there was an analysis that was leaked by uh, years ago. Uh, I think I think uh, WikiLeaks put it out. It was a CIA analysis, I think, um, that 
basically talked about these insurgencies and the fact that decapitation strikes alone were not enough to to end them. Um, that basically because there are redundancies, because there's a sort of a deep bench that we've talked about, because of other factors, these groups are sort of ready to keep fighting. Um, now, it doesn't mean they're going to be as successful, you know, um, as they could be if there were no decapitation strikes. It doesn't mean the decapitation strikes don't matter. But while those types of, you know, high value targeting, taking out guys like Qasem al-Ramey and Nazar al-Wahashi and potentially eventually here, Halei Batarfi, those are important, but they're not going to end these organizations as far as we could tell. It takes other factors to do that, right? Yeah, Bill? Tom, and- look, we always, we've, we actually simplify this. We, we've always said these decapitation strikes, they're necessary to hurt the group, but not sufficient to defeat them. It's, and it's that simple. We've seen this in Pakistan. We've seen this in Afghanistan. We've seen this in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, in Somalia, Al Qaeda replaces its com- commanders with deep with its deep bench, and the organizations drive on. Yeah, and you know, I mean, we, we just to return to AQAP and this. That's really one of the big questions here. Is you know, first of all, how many guys like Khalid Batarfi or other sort of you know comparable, um, capable commanders do they have in their ranks? Nobody can tell you. There's none of these analysts who talk about this stuff could tell you exactly how many. I can't tell you. Bill can't tell you. Um, you know, can can the U.S. intelligence? Uh, maybe they could tell you more of the picture, but I think that's even doubtful that they, they have a good grasp of this stuff overall. Um, you know, and then um, how, you know, how much dissent is there within the ranks? You know, I, I've seen reports in some of the Arab press that there was some sort of um, cantankerous chatter around Halid Batarfi's um, uh, nomination and eventual uh, naming as the new AQAP, AQAP Amir. You know, maybe there was, you know, but so far we haven't seen any commanders break away from that command or sort of, you know, start up their own sort of AQAP offshoot or, or in the last month or so anyway, jump to ISIS's ranks, which they could do. Again, possible that that's going to happen, but not something we've seen. So, you know, estimating cohesion is also an interesting thing that has to be done. So you have to look at both the depth of these organizations, what they have in terms of human capacity, human capital, and then, you know, what what's the degree of dissent or, or rancor within their ranks? And a lot of times um, that is something that it's there and we don't, we don't know about it and then it, it busts out, like as with the case of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and their relationship. Um, but in other cases, um, you know, it's not there to the degree people think it is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, that wraps up our conversation of AQAP. Um, there's a lot more to the story, of course, but we're going to talk about the various other theaters um, the Jotties are fighting in the coming episodes. We're going to talk about Shabab, one of our favorites. Um, we're talking about Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb and the competition it's gotten from ISIS in West Africa. Um, we'll probably talk more about Afghanistan. We can bore you to tears on that one if you like. Uh, we can talk more about Iraq and Syria. There's a lot to cover, a lot of different geographic theaters here. What's interesting about the jihadi uh, scene is that each one of these theaters has their own story, and you have to know the story. And that's what takes up all of our time at Long War Journal, really, is trying to document the different stories in these these places. And a lot of times we're not going to get the full story because nobody has the full story, and there can be surprises and twists and turns, but it's an absolutely fascinating field to study because of the human behavior involved because there's all sorts of aspects to this which are underappreciated, and that's why the Jihadis are still fighting in 2020, uh, you know, almost 19 years after 9-11. This is still a story that is going to remain important for policymakers, for citizens, for certainly for the people in these countries, and ultimately, we think, again, for Europeans and Americans, regardless of whatever policy course the U.S. government takes uh, now or in the future years. So in any event, that wraps up our conversation for AQAP. Thanks for joining us.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Generation Jihad. We'll be releasing a new show each week going forward, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. If you like this show, please do us a favor and go rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Thanks again for joining us here at Generation Jihad, and we'll see you again next week.